0: Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, it's episode 32, I'm Dave Whitson. Soldiers are hardly a new phenomenon on the Camino de Santiago. Indeed, the pilgrimage's origins are inextricably linked to military pursuits part of the ongoing Christian reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula. Numerous military orders protected and supported pilgrims on the way. The Knights of the Order of Santiago is perhaps the most obvious. Their distinctive Red Cross is still deeply associated with the route today. The Knights of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem also had a widespread influence, the legacy of which is visible in many parts of today's Camino, including, for example, an albergue in Cisor Menor, on the Camino Francés, just after Pamplona. And, of course, anyone who has walked the Francés has also spent a couple of hours spellbound by the castle in Ponferrada, which was a possession of the Knights Templar. Never mind the albergue in Manjarin, run by Tomas, claimed to be the last Templar. More and more, though, the soldiers of the present are taking a different form. Increasingly, veterans are finding their way to pilgrimage, seeing it as a rite of passage as they transition out of service and back to civilian life, and as an opportunity for healing or even forgiveness. This episode focuses on that phenomenon, beginning with Brad Genero, a 22-year U.S. Navy veteran who writes about his experience on both the Camino de Santiago and in his final tour of duty in Afghanistan in his book, A Soldier to Santiago, Finding Peace on the Warrior Path. Since writing that book, Brad has started leading other veterans on the way through his organization, Veterans on the Camino. I speak with one of those veterans, Dan Uvain, in this episode as well. Finally, we'll hear from Dr. Heather Warfield, whose research on the therapeutic value of pilgrimage and her specific work with veterans offers insight into the potential of pilgrimage in this realm. It's a loaded episode. Three interviews, three perspectives on veterans on the Camino. Up first, Brad. (laughs) Brad Genero of Mount Vernon, Ohio, is the author of A Soldier to Santiago, Finding Peace on the Warrior Path, and he joins me now to talk about his book and his experiences. Thanks for speaking with me, Brad. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Your memoir, A Soldier to Santiago, weaves together two very distinct journeys in Afghanistan and on the Camino in Spain. And so for those unfamiliar with your story, could you start us off with a quick synopsis of each?
1: Absolutely. The half of the book that talks about my journey in Afghanistan, that was the final deployment of a a 22-and-a-half-year military career. I had uh, deployed 11 times throughout my career, and and that one was absolutely the most dangerous. So it left a heck of an imprint on me. I was in a place called Ghazni Province in Afghanistan at a time when things were bad and getting worse. Mm -hmm. So I did a total of 69 missions while I was there on a nine-month tour, and it left its mark. So on the flip side of that, though, after retirement, I ended up walking the Camino. And so these two stories interweave. I plummet into some really bad stuff. And then, of course, on the Camino, I elevate back out of that. And it's kind of an unusual mixture, but it seemed to have worked.
0: Yeah, this is a very unusual Pilgrim Memoir in the way that it's structured, that you're weaving together these two different stories, ultimately building to some unified outcomes. But it really is you processing the former, the experience in Afghanistan through the latter while you're walking in Spain.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: So let's touch on Afghanistan and then we'll transition to Spain. You touch on a lot of the missions in Afghanistan in the book, maybe all of them. But the one that stuck with me the most was Mission 23 in the way that it captured how even in the absence of casualties or physical injury, and I don't think there was any in that mission, the experience of war is highly traumatizing. I mean, that was a stunning story that you related. Could you describe that mission and talk through your thoughts about it?
1: Absolutely. That one probably left more of an imprint than any others, because the opening salvo from the Taliban happened to be a sniper taking a shot that uh, was a very near miss. So that moment's burned into me for forever. Because it was so personal, when you know I wasn't behind any kind of armor, I was just standing out there and had a, a near miss like that. And that's really when you process that, when it sinks in that you are indeed mortal, in a flash could be your end. And so it that That's something that's always out there for everybody, but when it becomes very personal like that, it's a defining moment. So that mission was uh, certainly one that sticks out in my mind, and it's something that I revisit often, whether I want to or not.
0: And that was 22-year career?
1: Yes, 22 and a half years.
0: And this is your last time out in service? Was that one of the first times that you really felt mortal?
1: Oh, yeah, I mean, I've done some pretty challenging deployments before, but this was my first real combat deployment where I was actually out there being shot at and hitting IDs and and all of that stuff. So, yeah, this one was the deadliest, I would say.
0: And while we talked about how your memoir focuses on Afghanistan and Spain, I was struck by the fact that it starts in a third location, alternately with you in USA or Dubai, observing that you fit in nowhere and later observing, and this is a quote, that you were feeling like a stranger in a strange town, or you said that feeling like a stranger in a strange town felt better than being a stranger at home. What was behind those feelings and that thought process?
1: Yeah, that's really hard to put your finger on. But between the extreme anxiety and, and the, uh, the trauma that was a result of Afghanistan and also, you know, retiring from a full career in the military, where all I'd known since high school was wearing a uniform and serving in the military to just very suddenly have your identity stripped away and still be processing all the stuff that happened in Afghanistan. I was incredibly jumpy and anxious and all these things going on, and I simply wasn't dealing with them. So very standoffish. I was isolating myself more and more. And, you know, I, I would talk to some of my veteran buddies, but that was about it. I, I simply had nothing in common. I felt like I had nothing in common with anybody around me, and that's very difficult to deal with. So going to a place like Dubai, where I was constantly you know, looking over my shoulder anyways, it seemed to fit in a lot better.
0: Is this something you had felt after returning home from other missions, or was this a distinctly different sense of alienation when you left the service after Afghanistan?
1: It was much more pronounced after Afghanistan. I won't say that uh, some of my deployments were actually really nice. I've been to places like Palau, you know, so that was like coming back from vacation. But no, some of the others have been very, very difficult, but not to the scale of Afghanistan. Hmm.
0: Do you know the the translation of of the Latin word peregrinus? The root word for pilgrim in Latin, it literally translates to stranger in a strange land. You're kidding me. No, that's the first thought I had in my mind when I read that description. I
1: did not know that. That is, uh, that's
0: awesome though. Yeah, that was the, the root essence of being a pilgrim is dislocating yourself from the familiar, putting yourself into the foreign and operating within that setting. That's a perfect fit. And with that as a transition, what do you do the Camino?
1: I was leafing through a photography magazine and I came across these photographs. I just so happened to be a portion of the French Camino that passes through the Pyrenees. Mm-hmm. And it, it was just beautiful. And it, it said Camino de Santiago. So I Googled it. And I immediately knew that not that I wanted to do this. I had to do this thing. I had to delay it. I had some deaths in the family. And uh, that ended up on the back burner. However, I was still going through a lot of turmoil. And... Eventually, there was nothing left for me to do other than the Camino, Mm. and it was a calling. I, I just had to go Best thing I ever did.
0: It was it was disheartening and crushing as a reader to see you get Motivated to walk the Camino and then have this series of three deaths in your family that you just alluded to How did you overcome those setbacks? I would think most people living through that months of grieving and all of the other issues associated with death in the family that it would just sort of cast aside the plans for that kind of a trip permanently. So how did you ultimately circle back?
1: Well, I think my circumstances were unique in that a lot of people would have probably went on with their life, you know, their job, their career, their their family. I, however, didn't have any of those to fall back on. So as I dealt with those deaths in the family and And then I was left wondering what to do with myself. Mm -hmm. That's when it occurred to me to uh, pick up that guidebook in my backpack again and and just go do it.
0: And did you start in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port?
1: I did. Actually, I took a one-way flight to Paris, hopped a train, and uh, eventually wound up in uh, Saint-Jean. Yeah. You know, just one-way thing. And I I actually, I, I loved doing it that way. It was amazing not to have the pressure of a return flight. But for me, it was a little bit more profound. I, I didn't have a return flight because I had no idea where the community was going to lead me.
0: Yeah, you had no plans moving forward. That's right. Wow. What do you recall from those first couple of days walking? Did it immediately mesh with your expectations and your hopes? Or what were those first two or three days like? I
1: immediately knew that this was a very special place and that this journey was going to be something that was beyond noteworthy. So I just instinctively knew that this thing was was very, very different, not just a hiking trip. That occurred to me very quickly and then of course, you know you're gonna have all kinds of things that you're processing internally and externally. So the first few days though a lot of sore legs and just complete awe.
0: Can you put your finger on one or two of the differences between a hiking trip, just a hiking trip, and the Camino? Like, what really differentiated it for you?
1: Wow. You know, uh, when I think of a hiking trip, I I think of something like the Appalachian Trail. I've done a lot of hiking here in the United States. I think one of the biggest things that separates it would be the social aspect of the Camino and also the, uh, the history of it itself. I'm a history buff, so that really appealed to me to actually see and and touch and experience history that goes way back mm-hmm. and feeling a part of that. It's very different from a hiking trip because there's an energy to it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I've I don't I don't know what it's like to be a soldier. I've never been connected to the military in any way, but I've heard that one of the things that is lost the most with retirement or moving away from active service is the camaraderie, is the the community. And as I thought about your book from the first time I heard of it and your work with soldiers, I wondered if the pilgrim community and that experience of bunking with people every day, going through physical exertion with them every day, is that analogous in some way? There isn't the the threat to life and limb, but is there something similar between the two?
1: There are some similarities. I would say uh, the main similarity is that a soldier has no problem living and functioning in albergues. <laughs> that's not a challenge. The camaraderie, I've got to say, is quite different, though. Mm-hmm. When you're in a military thing, you're, you're surrounded by other soldiers, and you're taking extreme risk, and you're executing missions, that's a lot different. The camaraderie that you experience between pilgrims on a Camino It's different, I I think, because you're meeting these complete strangers, and somehow you're opening up to these people that you've never seen before, and they open up to you, and it's very, very different. I don't quite know how to put my finger on what exactly the difference is, but it's, it's very unique.
0: I remember there's a part in your narrative when you're in Afghanistan, maybe you're lying in bed, and you're wrestling with fear, and you write something to the effect of, is anybody else feeling this? And that moment hit me. It surprised me that that you would have that question and that the conversation wouldn't happen. And so is there more closing off and and building of certain walls between people there, whereas on the Camino, it's the removing of some of those walls? Is that a fair characterization?
1: That's a really, really good way to put that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's certain things you simply don't want to talk about when you're In a place like Afghanistan, Uh, you don't want to talk about, hey, guys, I'm actually terrified. (laughs) You know, you don't want to bring that up. You have to put on this front that, hey, I'm rock solid. I've got your back. And of course you do. But that doesn't mean you're not scared. That's human. But you don't talk about that. Whereas on the Camino, it is very normal and natural to talk about these things that are very personal and deep. And it's a safe environment.
0: How did you fit into the Pilgrim community as an American soldier? Were you welcomed openly, or did that bring certain tensions or uncomfortable moments?
1: I was welcomed openly, without question. I, however, was smart enough to steer away from any kind of political conversations. There's a few people that tried to go down that lane, and I was very careful to avoid that. There was no business of talking. There's nothing to be gained by talking about politics or current military stuff. Obviously, you meet all different kinds of people from every walk of life. On the Camino, I met other veterans, Mm -hmm. and I've met people from many different countries. Everybody had their opinion. They're all entitled to their opinion. There's just some conversations I didn't want to partake in. But as far as them welcoming me, there is, yeah, absolutely.
0: Let's talk about a couple of pieces in in your narrative. I'm interested in a couple of quotes that stood out to me. The first one is, early in your memoir, you write, I had determined that the Way of St. James was a crucible. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, it's a crucible in terms of, I've heard the Camino described as having three distinct phases. The first third, it's hard on the body. You're conditioning your body, you're having your aches and your pains, and your body's getting used to walking all day, every day. So it's that's, that's very physical. The center third, largely the Meseta, is more a spiritual thing. So that's when you're on a straight flat stretch that goes off as far as the eye can see it's actually kind of boring and that's where you go into a trance-like state and all these things that you've had buried for forever come to the surface and find yourself with ample time to do nothing but but think and puzzle and kind of pick those things apart. And then the final third is nothing but enjoyment for me. once you hit galicia you're just uh, delighted at every step. So I, I think it's a crucible because of those first two phases where, You work the body, and then you work everything on the inside. Once you grind it down and separate everything and analyze it and then put it back together, you're a better person for it.
0: Later in the text, you repeatedly state that there's no coincidence on the way. There's no coincidence. And this is after you relate a handful of different coincidences, <laughs> or maybe they're not coincidences, right? So what's your thought process? Like, what meaning are you constructing from all of these different encounters and incidents along the way?
1: Well, you know, there's uh, so many different things. that You've heard of the phrase, the Camino provides. Yeah. And I believe that wholeheartedly. Not what you want, necessarily, but what you need. Mm-hmm. And that could be any number of things. As far as coincidences go, I don't think there are on the Camino. I I think that we as humans and all things that are alive are bound by some kind of energy. And on the Camino, it is very evident. And it seems like on my experience with it, and I can't speak for everybody else, but it seems like you meet the right person at the right time who has the right thing to say. And it really kind of guides your journey. And I don't know that there's a, a good way to explain that either.
0: And this is not something that you've experienced in other settings. This is something that was distinguishing and distinct about your time on the Camino.
1: Well, I think the Camino forces you to slow down to the point where you notice things more. We as Americans, we're so rushed. Everything is a rush. And Camino is fantastic in that you're not going to be a rush to do anything. You're limited to walking and that forcefully slowing down and, and removal of the electronic gadgetry and constant connection with the internet, it forces you to notice things.
0: That's a good point. Your story on the Camino. As one reads through it, it struck me that it almost feels like a linear process of recovery, the sort of shedding of layers each day, relinquishing anger, becoming more open, becoming lighter. It really did, like stage by stage, it seemed like you were healing. And I wonder, though, if there's a moment that stands out for you as pivotal in that push through the healing process. Was there one really big point that stands out in your memory?
1: Yeah, there is. And you're right. When we talk about it being a crucible, I, I think that uh, that, that kind of relates with us because it was step by step. You know, the, the barriers were coming down. The, the layers were being peeled back. So right off the get-go, I, I walked with my friends, Altari and Alberto, and, and uh, they said, you know, when they first met me at the beginning, I was actually marching, you know, just very rigid <laughs> and not very approachable, not that they cared. By the end, I was relaxed, and it was so freeing. The pivotal moment for me was right at the end, even past Santiago, the the day I was going to arrive in Finisterre. And as I'm crossing that almost bare mountain ridge, you know, the last hike before you look down on the ocean and see Finisterre in a uh, distance, it was a massive lightning storm. Hmm. And there's really no cover and choices are, do I turn back and find cover or do I just keep pushing forward? I'm on an exposed mountaintop. And lightning was coming down incredibly close. And I I felt
0: like it was a a final test.
1: You know, push through, whatever happens, happens. And I don't know what else to do, but I'm not turning back.
0: Is there a comparison to be drawn with Afghanistan there? That obviously you're less likely to be hit by lightning, but you're being reminded of your mortality. There is this element of danger and no cover.
1: Yeah, there was. and. I hadn't really thought about it in terms of that. But yeah, there was distinctly a a very real danger right there. But I think in this case, it was saying, hey, accept the fact that you're mortal. And, you know, there's no fighting to be done here. This is just going through life. And I keep pressing forward.
0: Was there a moment along the way where you almost stumbled, where there was a significant setback or a challenge to your healing process?
1: There were no significant setbacks. I will say any number of times I was tempted to go to the bus station, the nearest bus station, and get the heck out of it. I was like Really? Yeah. I and that was, you know, down points when, you know, I was dealing with all these different demons that I had lighting my back. And I, I, they would they would plug these doubts into my mind. And so yeah, there were times where I, I just felt like, you know what, I'm gonna hit the nearest town, I'm gonna find a bus and get out of here. This is craziness. What am I doing? And then I would walk my way out of that but it it happened any number of times that was my challenge
0: I like what you just said walk your way out of it and I can immediately resonate with the moments when you find yourself in darkness when you find yourself in a bad mental space and fortunately you just have more kilometers and you just keep walking and eventually you do you, you make it out the other side
1: you sure do yeah yeah I think the hardest part with that is when you do reach the end to stay on the way. You don't have those more kilometers to walk, but it's the mental thing. Keep walking through it.
0: There's one other moment that stands out to me in your pilgrimage. It's the night in Bercianos, the dinner with the Italian friends, with the hospitalera. And it stood out to me in part because I don't know if I've talked about it that much with people, but there's something about these pilgrim dinners on Camino that are incredibly transformative and profound in their own way.
1: Yes, very much so. In fact, I've met a lot of people who prefer to stay in pensions or something a little bit more elaborate than just an albergue. But I think they're missing out on an important dynamic, and that is the albergue, the, the experience there, the pilgrim dinners, this closeness that you develop, the simple conversations with people that you may not even speak the same language. But this feeling of community. And I think that I apply that kind of the social factor of the Camino. It's something that's very unique, very powerful. And sometimes you hit on these places where it feels like you are in a very special place and some kind of wrinkle in time, and, and there's something very powerful at work there. And that was one of them.
0: Brad, what did you learn about forgiveness on the Camino?
1: Well, <laughs> it's not an easy thing, but it's a necessary thing. I found that uh, forgiving others is one thing that is very doable, but I, the much harder side of that is self-forgiveness, and that's something that I, I had to engage and work on. Still, no, that, that's something that, that takes continual work. It's an ongoing thing to apply
0: forgiveness. How did the Camino help you learn how to engage in self-forgiveness?
1: I think it just comes down to all the many miles walked and all that time spent inside and and saying, well, here's the alternative. If I don't learn to forgive myself, forgive others, then my life is going to be very limited in its joy.
0: Mm, Yeah. Tell us about your Veterans on the Camino project. How are you trying to build from your experience outward?
1: My thoughts on writing my story was only one part of my overall mission. And and at the time of walking to the French Camino that first time, I only had a very hazy thought of, hey, you know, I, I should guide veterans on a Camino. But now that's that's become a reality with the book actually getting published and coming out. That enabled me to move forward to what I really want to do, which is seek out these veterans who are struggling and take them on a Camino. So, you know, my my dream with that has been to work on this whole application process, find these guys that are struggling or girls from any nation too. They can be any coalition nation. I get them a backpack and boots and, you know, we start months ahead and I talk to them about training, about equipping and about some of the experiences they're going to have. Then I coordinate all their travel and they collect uh, per diem to cover living expenses while they're on the Camino.
0: So is there a whole organization built around funding and supporting this?
1: There is. It's it's called Veterans on the Camino. It's bona fide. It's still in its infancy. So I'm still working on the uh, 501c3 package, it's still very young, but I have an incredible board of directors. Dr. Heather Warfield is a professor, and she handles kind of the clinical side of it. She's getting a lot of great data for it. Mm-hmm. And the other board member is a an attorney, so can't really go wrong. <laughs> I'm the dumbest one of the bunch.
0: <laughs> and do you travel with them on the Camino? Like, So do you walk alongside of them along the way, or, or what's the vision?
1: I do. I actually... I don't walk right next to them. <laughs> That's not my intent. It's their Camino. But I am there as a safety net. So I'm, I'm there for the just-in-case. I'm there to coordinate stuff or lend them a hand or whatever.
0: What makes the Camino such a good fit for veterans as they transition out of service? Why is this something that you're passionate about and you think is important?
1: If you look throughout history at soldiers, it's interesting that it's on a Camino. Some of those roads were built by Romans, Roman legions. So you had soldiers, they would, have a career, or maybe not even a full career, but they would go fight a battle, and then after the battle, they would depart that battle to go home. Well, they had to march, mm-hmm. so with that, you had time and space and breathing and walking and processing. That's gone now. So what we have is veterans who are one day in Afghanistan getting shot at, and nearly twenty-four hours later, they're shopping at uh, Target, and it's very hard to process the realities. Very hard indeed. So what I think the Camino is fantastic because what it does is it forces you to slow down. It forces you to process. It forces you to reason and to question and to think about things in their entirety.
0: It's a great point. Brad, how can people find your book or find out more about the Veterans on the Camino Project?
1: They can find out more about Veterans on the Camino Project by going to the website. It's veteransonthecamino.com, one word. Mm-hmm. The book is available on Amazon. There's also a link to that on the website. And we're looking for help. So people who want to help this project along, there's ways to donate that are on the website. And we appreciate all the help to make this
0: possible. Great. Thanks for speaking with me, Brad.
1: Hey, thank you. I appreciate it, Dave.
0: Dan Uvain is from Denver, Colorado, and served in the U.S. Marines and continues to serve for more than two decades combined between active and reserve duty. He walked the Camino Frances in 2018 as part of a Veterans on the Camino group, and he joins me now to talk about his experience. Thanks for talking with me, Dan. Thanks for having me on, Dave. Where have you served over the course of your military career?
2: When I was active duty, I was
0: stationed in Eastern North Carolina at Marine Corps Air
2: Station Cherry Point. Also worked out of Camp Lejeune a lot, which was in that same area. And also spent a lot of time at 29 Palms on a sort of a rotation of training exercises there. Those were my usual stomping grounds early on.
0: Mm-hmm. And then I
2: had the opportunity to go out on a uh, Marine Expeditionary Unit, sort of take out my own detachment on that. And that took us all around the Mediterranean and points adjoining it. And at one point, actually, we were in Kosovo as sort of early phase peacekeepers. It was like right after the, the hot action had more or less ended, and we were part of, a, of an international contingent that was basically keeping the initial peace following the war there in Kosovo. That was the highlight of the first five years that I was in the Marine Corps. And then in the subsequent 15 years that have been the bulk of my career since then, I've been in some odd locations for a Marine. I mean, I've felt positions in uh, New York City, in LA, in New Orleans, and I'm part of a command called Marine Forces Pacific, which is located at Camp Smith, Hawaii now. During the course of that time, I've basically had the opportunity to serve anywhere that the Marine Corps has needed me, and I've been able to go. A couple of my deployments to Afghanistan have been in that time frame. Some other interesting stints, uh, Marine Forces Europe, which is located in Stuttgart, Germany, some exercises in places like Thailand, Philippines, Greece, Chile, and Peru. So I've really been all over the place.
0: Yeah, no kidding. That's a remarkable set of experiences that you have there. I would have asked you about retirement, but you clearly haven't retired. Do you see that transition from military service to full-fledged retirement coming down the road?
2: Yes, I think it's coming sooner rather than later. And I'm sort of at a decision point now where I'm making the call, basically, whether I'm looking to continue for a few more years, in what capacity, what does the Marine Corps have for me to fit into and and still, you know, play a significant role. And if it doesn't seem like that's in the offing, then yeah, it might be time to hang it up.
0: Is this an exciting thing? Is it nerve wracking? What's your sort of (laughs) emotional outlook as you approach that turning point?
2: It's a little more nerve wracking than I expected it to be. Mm hmm. Because I've had a reserve existence for so long, I kind of thought to myself that it really wouldn't be a big deal when I was actually contemplating retirement and hanging up the uniforms for good. But I've I've had such an active reserve run that for a number of the years in which I've technically been a, a reserve Marine, I've been on active duty for some large portion of, or in some cases, entire years. So it has been more than what one usually associates, I guess, with a reserve existence. Mm -hmm. So as I think about it, it's a little bit, yeah, it's a little bit daunting at times to realize that something with which I've so strongly identified for so long is at some point soon not going to be part of my life.
0: And it's my understanding that the Veterans on the Camino experience is intended to help with that transition. Is that part of what drew you to it?
2: That's a great question. I didn't think about that at all, hmm. that particular transition that I would be looking at in the coming future when I first managed to get on board with walking the Camino as, as one of the veterans on the Camino. I did certainly think about it a lot once we were actually in the flow of it and once we you know, were having such great conversations on a daily basis. I actually became part of it through what I consider to be a stroke of great fortune, great happenstance, I don't know what you want to call it, but Brad was on my team when we were working as Team Rubicon volunteers, post-hurricane disaster response work, um, right after Hurricane Harvey in the Gulf Coast of Texas in the fall of 2017. And so I met Brad through that operation. And once I heard, I had heard initially from another member of the team that he was this Camino guy. (laughs) And, And I had heard of the Camino, for sure. I had seen the way like back when it came out, and I'd had the notion of wanting to walk it myself, for sure, for years, but never was really seriously pursuing the notion at all. Like I said, it really was just great fortune, because I managed to talk to Brad about it, to hear some of his stories and his perspective about it. He was kind enough to give me a copy of his book, which I wound up reading, and then he was kind and thoughtful enough to invite me uh, not once, but twice. He gave me the initial opportunity to apply when applications were open. And at that point, I was simply unable to say if I was going to be free. That was just due to the nature of the Marine assignments I was taking and everything. I didn't think I was going to be available the following spring. And then when he had a sort of a late opening, He asked me again, and I'll never forget, I was in Thailand running a combined joint information bureau, basically press operations and other media ops for a very large multinational exercise, one that Brad took part in years ago, by the way. And so I got this kind of second chance. And at that point, I knew that that I likely had the availability. So I said yes. And I think just over a month later, I was on my way to France to meet up with the group and start walking
0: can you talk about that group and how this model operates with veterans on the Camino? Like, who were you combined with? How many were there? Where were they from? And what did that feel like as the group came together? Oh,
2: we were a pretty interesting small group, I feel like. There were five of us who were walking the entire way As the veterans on the Camino contingent for that pilgrimage, there was Brad. And Brad, I took an immediate liking to when I met him on the operation that we were on together in Texas, just because he had a very calm, been there, done that, seen a lot type presence. I found very quickly on that operation in Texas that I I could rely on his judgment and his ability to think through things. And basically, I was leaning on him for counsel already within the first couple of days of getting to know him. I certainly had the sense that he would be somebody that I continue to learn a lot from if I had the opportunity to to walk the Camino with him. We had two Polish veterans who were walking with us, Vitold and Peter. Vitold was actually Navy and Peter was Army. Both of them had deployed to Afghanistan and we certainly had some common ground and some common experiences. And then, of course, we had completely different experiences as well. They were great to meet right off the bat. Vito especially is very talkative, and I can be that way myself. So we fell in pretty quickly to walking and talking very regularly together. Peter, at his own pace, he was just hauling. And so he'd usually be out in front, be on his own, and he, he seemed kind of at, at his happiest that way. I, every now and then I, I'd have the chance to walk with him for a bit too when I'd manage to keep up with him. And he had a wit too. He had this funny kind of dry wit that would just have me in stitches when I'd least see it coming. We four were the ones walking the entire route. And then we had Giovanni, who was with us for a large stretch of it. Giovanni was fascinating as well. Grew up French entirely, except for being born in Italy and being named Giovanni. (laughs) <laughs> and um, and he had this, and he served with the French Foreign Legion, and then eventually the formal French military. And, and he had some great stories as well. I can remember just days of the miles kind of flying by, just chatting away with him about some of the places that he's walked, and you know some of the other places that he intends to walk. He's simply a, a, a peregrino by nature. He's, he's always looking for a chance to get out there and, and find one, or maybe even create his own. He's somebody that I would love to go and, and walk again with sometime too. And so that was the contingent of veterans. And then we had a couple of others who were with us who didn't have a veteran background, but they were definitely part of our group. There was Jean-Baptiste from France, who Brad had met on a previous Camino and become friends with. And there was Paige, Brad's niece, who was with us from Ohio, walking with us. And then along the way, we picked up others who you know, were with us so regularly that we thought of them as part of the group, too, by the end.
0: Yeah, I was wondering if you just tended to lean on each other and spend time with each other, or if you fully integrated into the pilgrim community on the road.
2: We were definitely a self-contained unit family for a lot of it. I can remember days at a time, probably a couple of weeks at a time, where we're coming across familiar faces, as happens when you're on the Camino. And then sometimes you'd even see the same faces a few nights in a row, but... We were very consistently together night after night, except for a few different times where one or two might spin off. And I was one for one period of that where I felt that I was holding up the pace overall. I was really limping with some injuries at the time. And I also welcomed it. I was looking kind of for the opportunity to experience it a little differently for a few days. And so I did that actually right in the middle of the uh, meseta. Kind of had my own journey within a journey, I would say, during those days before beating back up with the group, just happenstance style.
0: Could you talk more about those days? What was that like as you walked alone? And obviously the physical part was something that separated you off, but did you need that solitude?
2: I did need that solitude. Those couple of days were tremendously important to me, and they stand out still as some of the most vivid memories of the Camino for me because there was a part of me that envisioned it all along as more along those lines, walking largely by yourself in your own thoughts. And I had this great group that I was walking with, bonding with and and having such a great time with, but it also became like a traveling family that you're constantly with. And so the few days when I was on my own, I was coming across some different people, folks that we weren't seeing regularly. And then I also, I had that time that I badly needed to ponder to simply think about things ranging from just what the couple weeks experience had already been to everything. I mean, I should probably dig out the journal that I kept and see what I wrote during those couple of days because I think that was the standout period for sure. A lot more contemplative than you have the chance to do when you're talking constantly, when you're walking. There's just a difference in terms of how you think about things, how you approach things. Uh, Your perspective is different when you're walking by yourself than when you're walking with a regular group. I was walking largely with my late brother on my mind. I had lost my older brother four years prior to that Camino. I had the chance really more to reach out and try to communicate with him, which I didn't really feel I had the opportunity to when when walking along with the group.
0: The Camino is a powerful experience for almost everyone who walks it. What does it offer in your mind and maybe thinking about both your perspective and the other veterans that you walked with? What does the Camino offer to veterans as they approach the end of their career?
2: That's something that I still think about. In a way, I'm still trying to process that because I remember at first wondering why Brad drew such a connection between his experiences as a veteran, particularly in combat, and the Camino that he was so drawn to. I actually wondered, even after reading his book and before stepping off on it myself, whether that was just something he was drawing or whether there was something more powerful there that makes sense for veterans who are facing that transition or have begun it or already on it or whatever the case may be. And I think there's different aspects still. There's something for myself and I'm sure plenty of other veterans, there's something natural about walking along with a pack with whatever you need in it (laughs) that doesn't come as naturally to a lot of other people as it may come to those of us who've done that for a living for periods of time, right? Along with that, we're walking across these ancient areas of northern Spain where kingdoms have come and gone, and war was a constant state of affair for so much of the existence of some of these civilizations, as it is for a lot of civilizations around the world. And I was reminded of that very constantly as the cities and and even the great towns that we would come across, you know, so many of them are on their fortifications that date back tremendous number of years because that's how it went. This whole thing that Brad had seen and written about and then encouraged others to join him on, I saw the connection a lot more in myself. I saw it as, you know, hey, yeah, we are these soldiers on the Camino. And I get the feeling that at points in time way in the past, when the Peregrinos of that time probably had a higher percentage of those walking who had seen some war, I think that we probably represented a a much more unique slice of like today's peregrinos who are doing that. Not that we're the only ones we really enjoyed every time. And it happened a number of times where we would come across other veterans of whatever nationality. And there was sort of a natural camaraderie that would almost every time just easily unfold from there. And and it would kind of circulate quickly among us like, Hey, did you know that this guy flew helicopters in Vietnam? Are you kidding me? You know? So then, <laughs> you know, it, it would naturally like catch on from there. And so, I guess in a roundabout way, for me, the the combination of the, the history of where we were walking through, which you just so vividly reminded of on the Camino, with our own experiences and what brought us together to be walking as this group, there was a very powerful connection. I'm just still processing exactly what it is and why it was so special.
0: What do you remember about arriving in Santiago?
2: A... <laughs> a wave of relief washed over me when I saw it from that point where the statue is of the uh, Peregrinos, you know, looking out and seeing the
0: city. Monte de Gozo.
2: Yes. <laughs> it was a wave of relief for me. I still don't know why I was so hobbled, but I I had one lingering injury take over after another. the only thing that... The only thing that kept me going at the pace that we were going uh, was the group. I would say because if I was walking on my own, I I think I almost certainly would have taken a longer time to get there. At that point, I was so glad because I was getting there with my brothers. You know, we'd come all that way from arriving in uh, Saint Jean Pied de Port on a cold early spring night, and then crossing over the Pyrenees when they still were covered in snow. And so, to see Santiago just a few weeks later, really, but with everything that had taken place, the experience so fresh and ongoing still, I don't think I felt any pain that last stretch. Kind of felt like I was gliding as we made our way into the city. And it was just uh, <laughs> dropping that pack. <laughs> dropping that pack in the, in the plaza there. And then just all the big grins, you know, and, and hugs and group photos and everything. I mentioned that I was walking with my brother very much in my mind, in my heart, and I did kind of peel away from the group for a little bit, and I stopped in one of the oldest bars I've ever probably been in. Um, it was right there in, the, in that old quarter. I remember I got a beer there. I managed one journal entry, a short one, I think, getting emotional again, thinking about it. I was, I was emotional at that moment, and I felt like it was a moment I was just sharing with my brother.
0: Do you think you'll go back?
2: I absolutely plan to go back. I was hoping to have done so again already, but the, the lingering marine side of life has stood in the way of the, the time frames that I've identified as the ones I'd like to go back. But uh, I'm certain that I'll walk again, and uh, I hope it's much sooner rather than later.
0: Thanks for talking with me, Dan.
2: Dave, thanks for having me on. It's really been a pleasure.
0: Dr. Heather Warfield is an associate professor at Antioch University with a research focus on the therapeutic dimensions and transformative potential of pilgrimage. She's also the host of a new upcoming podcast, Meaningful Journeys, available on Podbean. Thanks for joining me, Heather. Sure. What first drew you to pilgrimage as a research topic? I'm seeing more and more people in the academic realm getting into this, and given your particular background in counseling and therapy, it seems like a particularly rich and interesting angle.
3: Yeah, it is. I think I'm one of a few people who are approaching pilgrimage from a psychological paradigm, but also with this kind of therapeutic focus as well. So I mean, the idea of going out to go within has always resonated with me. I think I can remember thinking about this even as a child, but I didn't know what it was called. So even, you know, during times of Stress or conflict, I would love to go hiking or do something that was outside of where I currently was, whether that was in my house or school or or something like that. So this idea that people can traverse outward out of their normal lives to have transformational change within is something that just makes sense to me. But it wasn't until my doctoral studies that I started considering that the term pilgrimage or pilgrimage journeys represented kind of what I was seeing with myself and with others. I did not grow up in a religious tradition that emphasized pilgrimage, so I didn't even really know what it meant until I was studying for my PhD. And then I read a book in preparation or a series of books in preparation to go to the Middle East and started to learn about the importance of pilgrimage in all Middle Eastern cultures. And for whatever reason, the term just stuck with me. And I thought, wait a second, this is what I've been doing. This is what I see other people doing who are telling me about these significant travel journeys. And so I thought, well, what does the academic literature have to say about this? And I discovered that there was very little, at least within psychology and counseling, that addressed the pilgrimage phenomenon. So I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. And this is where my research will be focused. Back also to your question about my background in therapy, because I do think that that's an important component of this. You know, I think that those of us who are working within the mental health field or fields know that there are a variety of different options for therapeutic interventions, which range from medication to talk therapy to lifestyle changes. I think I'm also a pretty strong proponent of the idea that therapy and therapeutic activities can occur outside of an office, and these can be very beneficial when they're occurring outdoors. So there are a lot of different exemplars we see from hiking programs, outdoor therapy programs, which really makes sense to me. So I think this idea that being outdoors or encountering something outside also kind of plays into the idea about how pilgrimage can be therapeutic.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How have you approached your research into this realm so far?
3: I've primarily been looking at the lived experiences of pilgrims, so from a methodological paradigm. I'm doing qualitative research, and the specific types of methods that I've been using are grounded theory and interpretive phenomenological analysis, both of which look at the data are the narratives that people are sharing, and then the role of the researcher is somewhat interactive, but also to identify themes across a sample of participants or pilgrims in this case, We spend a lot of time also interacting with the participants after the creation of the themes, making sure that these themes really reflect the experience of the individual pilgrim. I have looked at therapeutic and healing experiences. I have looked at experiences around career change or career calling that these types of experiences that people have on a pilgrimage where they might decide that they're going to switch careers or maybe they go on a pilgrimage because they're looking to switch careers or they don't know kind of what to do with their professional life or maybe they're considering what to study in school. So that's been one area that I've looked at. I've also spent some time over several years looking at how pilgrimage can be healing for military veterans particularly those who are combat veterans and have some interesting results that are similar cross-culturally, not just in the United States, but also in other countries. And then most recently, I've been working on a study with some students, and we're looking at how a pilgrimage journey can be a part of the transformation for folks who are coming out or who are coping with family difficulties as a result of their identity.
0: What have you seen specifically about the healing process for veterans through pilgrimage?
3: Well, I think pilgrimage provides a rite of passage in a couple of ways. So it can be a rite of passage out of the military. When a person enters the military, the rite of passage is boot camp or officer development school or some time-limited process ranging from several weeks to several months that trains a person how to be in the military, but it's more than that. It actually helps a person transition from being a civilian to being a member of the military. And we don't see that on the way out. There are not rites of passage right now, in at least in the United States, for people to have the time and space to transition away from being a military member to being a civilian. And that transition is oftentimes very difficult and often fraught with a lot of angst and questions. About how one lives in the civilian world, especially for people who have spent careers in the military.
0: And so, in that case, and really in all of the cases that you've studied, is there a particular element or multiple elements of pilgrimage that distinguishes it from other forms of walking? What's special about pilgrimage from a therapeutic or healing perspective?
3: Well, I think it depends on who you ask. This is always a hot topic, even at academic conferences on pilgrimage because we're kind of in this space right now where really since the early 90s, the academic discourse on what is a pilgrimage and who is a pilgrim has focused on the individual pilgrim and the meaning that is brought to the pilgrimage journey. So it's a tough question to answer, and I'll kind of answer it in a variety of ways, and then you can, and your listeners can kind of see where the dialogue is right now. As I mentioned, there's this focus on the the individual pilgrim, the individual pilgrim makes a decision to go on a pilgrimage and then the motivation for that is a pilgrimage, conceptualizing what I'm about to do as a the pilgrimage, then that's a pilgrimage we no longer have this modernist view that there are specific pilgrimage journeys. And then this is what pilgrims look like. In some religious traditions, in particular, the Catholic tradition and the Muslim tradition, pilgrimage has long been a part of the religious tradition. So there's no real controversy around whether the Hajj or the Camino, for example, are pilgrimages, or the people participating in these are pilgrims. So Those almost kind of set off in a category all their own because everyone accepts that these are pilgrimages. So I think the question that you're asking is more related to individual travel and whether going on a long distance hike is considered a pilgrimage. And for some people, it is. There are some other scholars, Palmer, Begley, and Co., who published an interesting paper in 2012 where they compared pilgrimage to other types of travel and travelers to pilgrims. So they identified two criteria that are important for determining whether a journey is a pilgrimage and a person is a pilgrim. The two criteria are, one, that the reason for the journey must involve the acceptance of a supernatural claim. So we could have a conversation around that. And also that sacrifice must be involved. That's also an interesting criterion because what is sacrifice? Is that ponying up money to go on a journey? Is it physical hardship? Is it separation from family? So I think these are kind of two areas that we could spend a lot of time talking, and then we could talk about individual pilgrims and the journeys and see whether or not those are considered pilgrimages.
0: Yeah, it's funny, my high school students, when they're walking, You know, we're in Spain and we're seeing the number of pilgrims spike in those last 100, 200 kilometers. They reflexively focus on the suffering angle and they think these people, they only have four or five days. They're not suffering. Thus, they're not pilgrims. So it's something that is sort of hardwired, I think, into the mindsets of a lot of us that the suffering makes it special or even sacred.
3: I do agree. And I think that there is a big difference between a pilgrimage which lasts several days or weeks or months, where there's a prolonged physical engagement with the environment and within oneself, and a pilgrimage which is an afternoon. However, there are some very well established pilgrimage traditions, particularly within the Catholic tradition, where pilgrimage is a visit to a shrine or a church. And it's well accepted that that is a pilgrimage. So I do think that we might be talking about different things. And again, I think we're limited here with our language. The whole term pilgrimage sort of stems from a particular view historically. And then we've sort of all been responding to that and reacting to that rather than having our own language to talk about what's going on.
0: In the research on pilgrimage, how much of it is really research into the modern Camino Frances? are we really getting deep insights into the phenomenon of pilgrimage or that very particular manifestation of it?
3: Well, I think it's a very astute question. The Camino Frances has probably the most well-established infrastructure in terms of access to people to talk to. Also, the people who are doing research are often doing this in the summer, either with students or they're taking time away from academic positions to also kind of be participant researchers on the Camino. And so I think that it's also driven by the individual scholar who has an interest. It's a personal interest in this particular pilgrimage. And while they're there, while these people are there, then they're doing research along the way. In addition, the nature of the albergues gives a chance to talk, and so there's this infrastructure, and also English is spoken, or German, or Dutch. So these are the three big communities of people who are studying the Camino Francis pilgrimage. You bring up a very good point, and we need additional research that's coming from other places and other perspectives. And I have a textbook coming out, an edited textbook next summer, where we're hoping to get a bit more of a multidisciplinary and multinational, multicultural perspective on pilgrimage.
0: That's great. I look forward to seeing that. The research that I've seen from you indicates that pilgrimage is therapeutic in four ways, biological, psychological, social, and spiritual. Could you describe a little bit about how each of those manifests?
3: Sure. You know, I think I have the benefit of having a biopsychosocial spiritual approach, kind of a mental health approach. I wish that I was smart enough to have come up with the categories, but I didn't. I already sort of had a pre-mapped out way that I was seeing pilgrimage. And so my research has just validated that and continues to validate that. Every study that I do, the categories kind of end up being the same. From a biological or physiological perspective, and we're talking about walking pilgrimages a lot when we're talking about this category because the physiological or biological benefit most often happen during these long walks. People report that they're in better shape, that they're able to walk in a more sustained way. There's some interesting research that was published from a professor at the College of William and Mary, and he looked at blood pressure, and I think he's a kinesiologist, so he was looking at it from that perspective. You know, I have heard anecdotal evidence of people who have had symptoms of diabetes that just in preparing for a pilgrimage, the symptoms subsided. So I think that there are lifestyle changes that happen in leading up to the pilgrimage and the pilgrimage itself, sure. But I think it's also the preparation and the lifestyle change overall that leads to the greatest therapeutic benefit in this particular category. From a psychological perspective, people report increased meaning both during the pilgrimage and after the pilgrimage. There are some interesting studies coming out in this area. One very large study looked at psychological well-being of pilgrims in India, and a very, very large sample size. This researcher found that people reported higher levels of psychological well-being after the pilgrimage. This also sort of segues into the social piece, because it's hard to tease apart the psychological and social, but People also report having a greater sense of well-being, being being more at peace with themselves than the social part of this. Every single pilgrim that I have talked to and I've interviewed over now almost a decade talks about the increased connection with other people and the ability to be present with people in a way that is more significant than before they went on a pilgrimage. So listening at a deeper level, hearing people's stories in a way that is more tolerant, And then also the increased connection with the environment. So there might be a new category in terms of environmental peace as well, because people do then continue going into the outdoors, actually, many times after the pilgrimage. So I think that's a significant benefit. And then the spiritual category here is related to a connection to God or divine energy or even other humans, this awareness that we are connected as humans and we share this quest for meaning and that our experiences are more similar than different. You know, there are so many people that are going on a pilgrimage who are not religious or who do not have a particular spiritual framework. And these people are also reporting spiritual or existential benefits to the pilgrimage journey. So this category is not only reflective of people who are approaching a pilgrimage from a religious perspective.
0: I'm wondering about the timing of these. Have researchers taken a longitudinal approach and tracked this over time? Are these studies focused on people in the immediate aftermath upon returning home? What is the research focused on from a timing
3: perspective? The one study, Schnell and Polly, published mid-2013, 2014, 2015, somewhere in there, They looked at three and six months post-pilgrimage and they were looking specifically at meaning making and increased meaning. And they found that there was an increase in meaning immediately following. So that would be within the three months and then the six months time period. You're bringing up a great kind of new research thread.
0: For those who are seeking clarity or healing on their pilgrimage, obviously the mere act of walking could be beneficial. But based on your research, do you have suggestions for practices, particular approaches they could take that might intensify that healing?
3: I think being open to honest, authentic conversations with other people is a critical part of this. There are some people who want to go on a pilgrimage and then remain isolated. The people that I've interviewed indicate that this interaction piece is actually quite significant being able to be as you are or be who you are to a stranger and then have that reciprocated can be quite significant in terms of healing. But I do think that the pilgrimage in and of itself has the potential to be therapeutic without other activities. However, I think it's quite motivated by the individual. Some people are journalers and writing helps frame reality and kind of purge. And so I think that in that situation, that can be significant as well. But I wouldn't say that it has to be that way.
0: It's an exciting field to be working in because it's really taking off, right? Like there's more and more people who are interested in pilgrimage. There's more and more academics who are looking to do research in the realm. What are the directions that you're looking forward to moving into in your research in the years ahead?
3: I think that there is a lot of potential with the research with military veterans. And I would love to be focused in this area almost exclusively because we need better ways of approaching mental health, period, in the United States, and particularly with military personnel and veterans. So I wish that we would be funding these types of pilot studies in a more significant way.
0: Dr. Warfield, this has been really interesting. Thank you for making the time to talk with me, and I look forward to listening to you more on your Meaningful Journeys podcast. Thanks. I hope to make this podcast in a way that it feels fully accessible to anyone in the English-speaking world, regardless of nationality but I recognize that to some degree my American blinders always shape the programming. That said, I'm going to be explicitly America-centric for a moment, though perhaps this has relevance to other countries. The United States is currently involved in the longest war in its history, 18 years and running in Afghanistan, having just eclipsed Vietnam. The good news for America and American soldiers is that the American soldier casualty rate, that is specifically to say soldiers dying in action, is at a historic low relative to other wars. I realize some listening will want to highlight the other casualties involved, and that's an important discussion, but this is not that discussion. The bad news is what is happening to many of these veterans after they return home. The VA reports that more than 1.7 million veterans receive treatment in a VA mental health specialty program in 2018, but we also know that many veterans don't have access to or take advantage of this for various reasons. Indeed, medical services offered through the VA have been the stuff of scandal over the last decade, peaking, though certainly not concluding, in the 2014 disaster. On the most dire end of things, we have seen suicide rates for veterans in the range of 20 to 22 per day. It's fair to question whether the problems are getting worse or have simply plateaued, but that kind of debate misses the point. The problems are certainly not getting better. The strategies that have been employed to this point have been proven to be limited in their efficacy. We need to try new things, to better support veterans as they return to civilian life. I don't know about the scalability of bringing veterans on the Camino, I don't know how far it can go. It's certainly only one small part of a larger system of support that is needed. But for those of us who have seen the value of this experience in our own lives, it seems like a very small ask that we help make it accessible to others who have put their lives in harm's way. That's all for this episode. Thank you to Brad Gennaro and Dan Yuvain for speaking with me about their experience with Veterans on the Camino. You can learn more about the organization at veteransonthecamino.com. As this episode they're is released in November in the 2019, country. they're currently running a campaign for Giving Tuesday on their Facebook page, so that's an easy way to contribute. You can also find Brad's book, A Soldier to Santiago, at your online bookseller of choice. Thanks as well to Dr. Heather Warfield for speaking with me. You can find her research Nobody on her site at Antioch me. University podcast is now available on both Apple and Google Podcasts. You can reach me at podcast at gmail.com or through our Facebook page. Thanks as always for listening.